The New Testament reading today is taken from Paul's epistles to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do, do not all have the same function, so we, ought, uh, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual, individually members one to another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be And let's pray again. God, our gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege of sitting at the feet of Jesus in the teaching of his gospel. Grant us help today to prosper under the teaching of your word by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Father, grant me grace now to speak clearly, to speak truly, and to speak boldly by the power of your spirit. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text today is uh, Romans 12. And I'll be looking briefly at this passage with you. And leading up to Romans 12, really right from Romans 1, the first chapter, uh, up to Romans 11, where Paul erupts in that famous hymn of praise to God, all the unsearchable riches of God, he says. Right up all through those first 11 chapters, Paul has been working through some considerably heavy doctrine. And now in chapter 12, Paul brings the matters down to a practical level. The rubber hits the road, as it were. And he begins to apply the doctrines of Romans to our everyday life. Theology, Remember, says that old Puritan theology is the blessed science of living unto God. And so Paul now wants us to take this doctrine and to begin to use it to live rightly to God. And you'll notice, first of all, in Romans 12, 1, that he begins by an appeal. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. This is very strong language. What Paul has to say is not a suggestion. He's not shuffling up to the church and handing out tips for a better life. Rather, Paul is pleading. Paul is urging and beseeching his readers to live in a certain way. And if ever there was evidence that the preaching of the Word of God ought to be hortatory, it ought to exhort the people of God, then it's here in Paul saying, I plead with you people of God. Please listen to me and live your lives differently. In view of all the weight of God, he says, in view of the weight of his salvation, in view of the glory that I've been describing to you, Romans, in view of God's plan to redeem a universe 
that had become uh, subject to futility, he says, in view of the depth of the riches of grace, brothers and sisters, dear Romans, I beseech you, live your lives differently than the world lives theirs. And the first thing that Paul says is that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And by bodies here, Paul means a synecdoche. He's using the part to stand in, uh, in place of the whole. I want you to place your whole self before God in worship. But you'll notice how cleverly Paul here pairs bodily worship with spiritual worship, as if he's well aware of the temptation to think otherwise. A temptation to think that spiritual worship is predominantly about the spirit. No, Paul says, present your bodies to God and such a presentation of the body is spiritual. Paul won't let us imagine that what is most spiritual is what is most distant from the body. The ecstatic spiritual experience where we become indifferent to flesh and sense, the dreams and the visions that have little to do with this corporeal existence. No, he says, spiritual worship is bodily. Spiritual worship has to do with what you do with your arms and your hands and your legs and your stomach and your tongues. What you do with this stubborn donkey of a body, that is highly spiritual stuff, Paul says. And so spiritual worship is incarnate worship, and God is constantly reminding us of this truth whenever he brings us back to this table. Time in and time out. He won't let us get away from the truth that to be spiritual is to be physical, is to be bodily, because here at his table, in his matchless, unsearchable glory, God comes to us in the person of his Son through a piece of bread. And he comes to us in his ineffable, mysterious wonder through a goblet of wine. And so we're simply not allowed as Christians to denigrate the body, as if somehow the body and what we do in the body is less spiritual than the spiritual experiences. This is why, by the way, we are free in our worship to make the sign of the cross, something that some people have a, a, you know, some problem with. We make the sign of the cross because it's a way for our body to act and to move in response to the truth of God. When I sign with the sign of the cross during the absolution, it's a way for the body to affirm that there's no other hope for forgiveness but through the cross and the bloody passion of Jesus. It says it doesn't come through the priest. It certainly doesn't come because of your faith. Forgiveness comes only because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when someone, a man or a woman, signs themselves before they come to receive the Lord's Supper, it's the body affirming the creed. I believe that Jesus Christ suffered in my place. I believe that his death satisfied the anger of God. I believe that as I take this bread, Christ's wholeness comes in place of my 
brokenness. Christ's light comes in place of my darkness. Christ's righteousness comes in place of my sin. It's a way for the body to shout to itself, I believe that my only hope is the cross of our Lord Jesus. Because spiritual worship, my brothers and my sisters, is bodily, it's physical, it's incarnate. And Paul goes on to define this bodily worship as a sacrifice. You'll notice as you continue to read in your Bibles before you, present your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice to God. Paul defines our worship to God, and here not just Sunday worship, Sunday worship which is unique, Sunday worship which is important, but here Paul talks about lifelong worship, all week worship, 24-7 worship. Your life, he said, should be constantly surrendering your body to the Lord, incomplete and in utter abandonment. Your work, your play, your leisure, your direct devotion to God, all of it should be utter and complete resignation of the self to God. So whether you eat or whether you drink, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, have you got that far, Josh? Whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. This is your worship. And so when you study, when you're reading biology, or heaven forbid chemistry, when you're reading these things, you say to yourself, this is my abandonment to God. When you step into your workplace and you, uh, you are going about the grind of the mundane, you say to yourself, this too is an act of consecration to God for his praise and for his honor. When you come to church on Sunday, remember that your worship is to be characterized, says Paul, by sacrifice, by giving your body and your voice to God for his honor. And sacrifice, my brothers and sisters, hurts. (laughs) Sacrifice is just what it sounds like. Sacrifice costs. Sacrifice is uncomfortable. Sacrifice doesn't come easy to any of us. And somehow we've allowed in the 21st century to let our minds come to the place to think that if only we can make church comfortable enough, if only we can make church padded enough, appealing enough, jazzy enough, then... Then people will fill our pews. And we've forgotten that the Bible describes worship primarily as an act of sacrifice, something that costs us significantly to do. Oh, you mean I've got to read a bunch of scripture when I go to church? Oh, you mean I've got to sit and listen to someone pray ad nauseum for the whole world? Oh, you mean God expects me to work in worship? Well, yes, we do expect that. Why? Because God is worthy of the worship that is due His name. We don't come here primarily to get. We come here primarily because God is worth the worship that is due His name. We come not to tickle ourselves, but we come, says Paul, to give the sacrifice of praise 
and of honor to God. And for most of us, we all need to be far more like King David in this way. David, you remember at the end of 2 Samuel, David's committed a great sin. David's made a great mistake. And he has to go to God and he has to offer a sacrifice. And so he goes as directed to Araunah's home. And he asks to purchase, to pay for his threshing floor so he can raise an altar to God for sacrifice. And Aruna says, well, is it for the Lord? Oh, David, then just take it. Have it all. Here's the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the yokes of the oxen for the wood for the fire, David. Just take them. To which David replies, no, no, I will surely buy this for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings for that which costs me nothing. Brothers and sisters, worship is a sacrifice. And we must, says Paul, be willing to pay the price. The price to rise early and to wake in the dawn with hymns of praise to the Maker and the Sustainer of all things. The price to devote ourselves to the Word of God so that we live in it like a fish lives in a sea. And so all the Word of God is constantly calling, constantly beckoning us, constantly speaking to us. The price to meet with the people of God once a week in worship and in praise. Why? Because it's the Lord's day and he's worth it. And he calls us to make the sacrifice. What an honor it is, writes the Puritan George Swinnick, to our great landlord that multitudes of tenants, they flock together to his house to pay the rents of his praise and thanks and worship for everything he gives them to enjoy the whole week long. How loud and how lovely is the noise of so many golden trumpets. What an echo do they make in the heaven's ears. God loves the gates of Zion, as the scripture says, above all the dwellings of Jacob. Worship is to be a sacrifice. True worship, says St. Paul, costs. Worship may indeed hurt, but we will not give the Lord that which costs us nothing. We will not give in to the doctrine of cheap grace. Offer yourselves, says Paul, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And finally, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every Christian, if you know the history of the Puritan era, every Christian is to be a nonconformist. Outside of Christ is conformity to the world and its principles, the spirit of the age. In Christ, we reject the operating principles of the world. This world is a vast empire. And we are the rebels who refuse to succumb to its message, to its code. And that code of this vast empire of the world is made evident by Paul's charge in verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You see, the code of this world is self-admiration. The code of this world is self-exhibition. And we all fall victim to it, but it's pernicious and it's deadly 
and it's everything that the kingdom is not. The desire for people to notice me. Because in the end, what we think is that we're worthy of the notice. We think of ourselves too highly. Instead of being persuaded that we are the least of all the saints and the chief of sinners, we consider ourselves something worthy of admiration and people therefore purposefully exhibit themselves. Would you not take a moment to look at me? What a piece of work is man. What Shakespeare said in irony, we say in, 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 uh, in, in, as a matter of fact. But you see, the language of grace speaks otherwise. And it says in the words of Thomas Akempis, that great devotional writer, if you would learn anything profitably, labor to be unknown. Gosh, that's hard, isn't it? In this age of Instagram and Facebook, what a challenge. If you would learn anything profitably, labor to be unknown. Well, let me tell you this morning or this afternoon that it's possible by grace because we have learned that there is one who is infinitely worthy of admiration and infinitely worthy of attention and our hearts are fixed on him and our minds are fixed on just this. Do not look at me. Do not look at me, but look at him. He must increase, and I must decrease. I labor to be unknown, but I also labor to make Christ known by all. This is my life, because I don't think more highly of myself than I ought. But I can never think too highly of Jesus. And this kind of attitude changes everything in life. This kind of attitude is Copernican in its revolution. It changes our habits, changes the way we dress, it changes how we deal with people, and especially it changes how we deal with God. For if today we are convinced that Christ is infinitely more worthy than myself, then I will spend all of my hours and all of my days not on me, but I will spend them on him. And so God grant grace to each of us today to be so moved by his gospel and to be so moved by the person of Jesus in his infinite worth that we might live lives that are worthy of him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.